Hey, my name is Ev Bannett. Welcome back to the Asode Blocks YouTube channel. If you want to get this content in audio, you can head over to the podcast areas in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, under the same name, Asode Blocks. All the same stuff that's here is there. And in this video, I would like to speak about this very well-known concept. If you've been listening to my videos, watching them over the last few months, you already know that I like to take things that seem like they're very obvious, that we've encountered many, many times, and in the Torah space, and the Jewish space, and in the Kabbalah space, and these are things that we've just been doing or been exposed to in many different ways and just haven't really had the chance to pull back in a very clear way to take a look at them, almost from like a clearer, more truth-based perspective. Instead, we tend to approach a lot of these types of things with a cultural perspective, which we pick up from our environment, other people, things that we've heard or learned in all kinds of haphazard ways. Unfortunately, that's how learning goes. Very often it's haphazard in that kind of way. And so this is really supposed to be about trying to cut through the haphazardness and get to a clearer, deeper, more real, more truth-based understanding of a lot of these concepts. So what I want to talk about is this concept called Shabbat Shabbos. This is a very popular, well-known one. Uh, it is, in English, we call it the Sabbath. In fact, it's so popular, it made it into lots of other religions too. And so those who think that Torah is a religion, so this thing sort of spread somewhere else and then became part of other very dogmatized perspectives. That's why other groups of people also have days of rest and the Sabbath and all these kinds of things. And what I want to try to introduce to you is just sort of what exactly Shabbat is in a very clear way and sort of kind of cut away some of the uh, associated extra things that are really more of the cultural perspective in terms of Shabbat and to understand what this is in a really uh, as clear as possible sort of way. So in order to do that, let's just ask a couple of questions about what exactly Shabbat is and sort of how to think about it. So the issue with Shabbat, I think, is that when you really look at it and start to think about what it's really sort of for, so there's a couple of things that stand out. One is that Shabbos has this uh, idea that people tend to talk about that it's this day of rest. In fact, the word Shabbat is translated often as resting, and so it's a day of rest. And so we, you know, we're, we're supposed to just relax or rest, but then there's different approaches to that. Some people say you should like, you should, in the cultural space, that means learning Torah, means connecting to other people, building relationships, sleeping, eating good food. And these are all things that sort of are associated with Shabbos a lot of the time. And then there's also another component, which is this aspect of halacha that's called the malachos of Shabbos, which is these are things that you're not supposed to be doing on Shabbos. They're called malacha, and in English that's often translated as the word work. And so you're not supposed to do work on Shabbos. And then there's like all kinds of associations with that, like don't go to work and don't do things that are exerting yourself in some kind of way. And these things are not entirely false. They're also not entirely true. There's sort of a mixing together of things in there, some of which are Torah and truth, some of which are culture and just add-ons and things that sort of float in because of all kinds of distorted perspectives. And so the first question we have to sort of deal with here is, well, what exactly does the does Shabbat mean? And then also, what are these melachot? Because there are these 39 different melachot that we're not supposed to do on Shabbos. And the question is, what are those things? And there's a lot of extensions to that also. So in order to begin to answer that, those questions and start to assess what exactly this, this day is sort of for and how to use it, we have to sort of pull back for a second and just look at it uh, in, a, in a bigger picture kind of way. Because Shabbat is actually just one of the mitzvot. The mitzvot, um, mitzvot, mitzvot are actually sort of like, you can think of them as tools. They're often translated as commandments, but actually mitzvot are, are bridges. In other words, you could think of it as, well, if you are an endless consciousness, this one self that is behind all of the complexity, diversity, and multiplicity of the body in terms of its thoughts and willpower and different emotions and ways that it actually manifests in the physical form and the nervous system and all this diversity that the body is, but there is this one self 
that is behind all of that and is shining through all of it, which is what you are. You're the neshama. You are the self that is manifest through this complexity of this body. So there's a series of stages in which the neshama sort of bridges, its, bridges itself with the body and translates itself from being an intangible beyond space and time self into a tangible space and time based construct. So as an example, when I wave to you, so what's happening is me, the self, is deciding to translate myself into a comprehensible construct in the physical world that looks like this. I go through a whole series of stages, my willpower, my thoughts, my like my my emotional state, my conviction, my decision to sort of implement that into a physical way. And I go like this and I translate myself through this series of stages until I'm now visible and receivable in the physical and the you know perceptual uh, comprehensible space. So that's what this is doing now. And even when I'm speaking, it's the same thing. Now what I'm doing is I'm translating my inner self into a series of ideas, and those ideas are now gonna be sort of uh, slowly uh, boxed into this system that we use, which is creating sounds with parts of our body that then put the sound out into the world. And then you can actually hear the sound when you, on the receiving end, use your ears to unpack the sounds and then translate them inside of you into ideas. Then you can comprehend them on the level of the self. So now you, the self, is receiving from me, the self. We're connecting through this series of stages as I translate and share myself towards you. And you then receive and unpack that back towards yourself. And you then receive me and we can connect through that. So. That's how we are how we are sort of structured. Now the issue with that is that you could think of it as well if the self is one self but there are many many different aspects and facets and a large diversity and complexity to the tools that the self is using so then you could think of it as well the self has many paths through which it can actually express itself into the outside world. And so the concept of mitzvot essentially are supposed to be a map. And what mitzvot are is there are ways to sort of bring the self in harmony and in and, and into contact with every possible facet of the set of tools that we are using to in order to, to share and translate ourselves into the world so if you think of it as like well here's one self and then there's all, almost like all of these different um pipes that the self can sort of decide to send itself into and share itself through each of these pipes and there's let's say 613 or even more because it's really more than 613 mitzvot but okay whatever so all these different uh gateways that the self can now use to translate itself into the outside world so the mitzvot are essentially a map of all those different gateways and they tell you sort of what and what and how to translate the self effectively into the outside world through each of these different pathways so you can think of it almost as like mitzvot are are, are tools that help the self translate and bridge from the intangible space uh, or non-space to be totally you know clear about that uh, into these different tools and stages that eventually make us manifest in a tangible physical receivable kind of way I'm waving like that sort of show what that would look like so that's the that's what mitzvot are so every single one of the mitzvot plays some kind of role in that map and takes and relates to one aspect or facet of the totality of being that you are so shabbat is one of those mitzvot. And so first we have to sort of put it into context and say, okay, there's a mitzvah called Shabbat. And the question is, of course, well, what is the nature of that mitzvah? What exactly does it do? How does it work? And so the next part of the analysis has to be, okay, well, different mitzvot are qualitatively different. Some of them are actually linked to some event or some situation or some issue that's going on or that went on in the past. And the mitzvah itself is sort of like linked to that in some way that is reflecting what happened but is also permanently true forever. 
So a classic example of that is something called Gid HaNasheh, which is a mitzvah that seems to be linked to an event that took place in the past in the story in Parshas Vayishlach. But the mitzvah itself still continues on and on because the, whatever that story was about, where the mitzvah kicked in, so that story is still true today. And so the mitzvah is still reflecting one facet of our being that was described and, and exemplified in that story. But let's talk about the one Shabbat for, for now because that's really what we're here to, to talk about in general. So the Shabbat mitzvah, the issue with it is that very often we tend to think about it as well. There's seven days of creation and then we have this this seventh day is called shabbat and that's the day that hashem rested and so when you actually look at the story though so first of all a couple of details to throw in there first of all um the the actual ending if you if you sort of if you sort of look at the, the process of hashem differentiating himself more and more and more into the physical world that we experience what some people like to call creation so that seventh phase the last phase that seventh phase actually is still happening today in other words, Hashem essentially entered into this phase, the seventh phase of this differentiation process that we call creation in simple English. So that seventh phase essentially is still happening now because what Hashem was doing was he was actively manifesting more and more and more things and new things were essentially springing into being and evolving and then becoming more and more and more complex. And then at a certain point, it says that Hashem stopped doing that and he entered into a state of vayina fash where now he's almost like, inert in terms of making this type of evolution and, and differentiation take place actively. In other words, you can sort of think of it as, well, during the six initial phases of this process, so there were there were things that, that were being brought into existence, what's called almost like yesh me'ayin, like from nothing, and there's just sort of stemming from Hashem's self, and then essentially being translated into the physical world that you see. And then at a certain point, so now there is no longer any new things. We have a limited number of forces, a limited number of elements, a limited number of all these different aspects of, of, you know, of, of, the, of the space and time construct that Hashem differentiated and manifested. And then at, at that point, so now all of those things that Hashem manifested in those six phases are essentially going to now operate according to their rules. And not, there's not going to be anything new. You'll have lots of permutations of those different parts, but you'll never have new things coming into being. There won't be any more, any, any let's say, like uh, completely different. There won't be a fifth or sixth or seventh force that did not exist that will suddenly come into existence. So in other words, you'll have, so now as an example, one of the four forces, we have gravity. So gravity exists. And so there will not be suddenly some other force that is like not gravity that will suddenly come into existence that you can't even imagine because we only know gravity as that major force. You won't have anything like that. So Hashem sort of entered this state of, of stopping where he was no longer manifesting new things in that way. There was no longer this process of differentiation taking place in terms of new elements. And so, all there, so all that there is is now sort of unfolding and, and, and moving according to its rules, but there is no uh, new things coming into being. So that's what the seventh phase of this process actually represents, that Hashem is Shabbat. He's, he is literally stopping from bringing new things, from translating himself into ever more new things that we've never experienced or encountered that don't exist yet, and suddenly they do exist as he manifests them anew. There is no such thing as that happening anymore. Instead, we have now a stable context where all the things that are here are here, and they are all following their rules and doing their thing, and they permutate in ways that we don't always recognize, such that we do have like things that look like they're kind of new, but they're really just taking regular scientific principles, observable principles about reality, and then we're just uh, understanding how they are now able to be permutated into new forms that we have not seen before, but it's really all the same things, and there is nothing new underneath the sun and inside of the universe ever since Hashem stopped 
doing that kind of newness creation process. So that's what the seventh phase of, uh, of this process is. And that seventh phase is still happening now. Hashem is still in a state of Vayinafash. So that's the event that took place. And then you'll notice that whenever the Torah brings in and mentions there's a mitzvah of Shabbat, so, so the Torah always references it and links it to that event. When Hashem stopped, Shabbat Vayinafash, that Hashem stopped and he now is in a state of just, just being. And so when we have this we have this parallel mitzvah that is sort of linked to that event. So that's what makes this a little bit unique in that clearly there's some relationship between our mitzvah of Shabbat and the story of Hashem stopping in his process of expressing himself and translating himself into the physical and, and space and time-based universe that we encounter around us. So when we sort of take that that piece of information and then sort of take that a little further. Well, if you want to understand what it is that you are trying to accomplish with Shabbat yourself, well, it would probably be smart to understand what exactly Hashem was doing when he was Shabbating himself at the, at, at, as he entered the seventh phase that he is still within right now, the seventh phase of differentiation of Hashem into the universe that you see. So if you actually look at the word Shabbat and what Hashem does in the story there, it's not that Hashem is resting. The idea of resting, so we tend to project our own experience of resting onto Hashem when we think about Hashem resting for Shabbat. What exactly does that mean when, when we rest? So we have a finite amount of energy inside of these bodies, and we basically have to keep bringing in raw materials to re-energize this machine so we can continue to accomplish and express the things that we're supposed to be doing through our bodies. So we are a self that is linked to Hashem, but the body itself requires replenishment of raw material from the world around it in order to continue to operate. This is something which is, has been true ever since the story of the Garden of Eden happened, and that's because in that story, we, before we ever ate from the tree of the, of the experiential knowledge of Tov and Ra, so we actually had bodies that were able to uh, replenish themselves directly from their connection to Hashem in a certain kind of way, or in, in, it's a little bit more complex than that, but we'll leave that out for right now. But the point is that ever since that we ate from that tree, so now our bodies are constantly in a state of struggle to actually re-energize themselves. And so we're always looking for more energy sources to actually feed our bodies so that we can continue to propel ourselves forward in the process of, of bringing our consciousness to ever-evolving higher states of expression. So given that that's the way that things are for us, so of course we think about things in terms of rest because we have to actually let our bodies recharge and rest sometimes so we can replenish our energy levels. With Hashem, it doesn't work that way. Hashem is the source of all energy. Hashem is the source of the, even the concepts of there being a, a limitation on energy and there's some kind of, there are laws of energy and mass and all those things are, are, are things that Hashem manifested and, and brought into being from nothing. So that didn't have to be that way. Hashem decided to make it that way inside of the setting and there's a whole discussion of why that is, but it's a separate point. So our purpose right now, the whole idea here is that the idea of rest in that sense is not apply to Hashem. So what does it mean that Hashem was Shabbat? Well, the word Shabbat actually does not, does not even mean rest anyway. The word Shabbat means to stop. It means that now you are stopping what you were doing. You were engaged in some kind of activity, and now you are stopping. So for human beings, that usually a corollary to that, if you are stopping an activity that you are engaging in, is that you are also resting. But that's not true if you're Hashem, because resting implies you're re-energizing, and Hashem does not need to re-energize since he's a source of all energy. So the first thing to think about here is that Shabbat has something to do with stopping. And Hashem is stopping something, and so and, and, and we are also shovet, we are also stopping. And the question is, well, what exactly, A, what is the stopping that is taking place? Stopping from specifically what? And B, what is the point of that stopping? Why would we want, why would it be a good idea? What is the purpose 
of that kind of stopping. So in order to answer that, we have to go a little deeper. What exactly was Hashem stopping? And what exactly is it that we're supposed to stop doing on Shabbat? Well, we already brought up this concept of malacha, and the concept of malacha, again, badly translated as work. So the concept of work does not come anywhere near what malacha actually is. Malacha is this fascinating phenomenon. What malacha, the definition of malacha, you'll notice the word malacha itself is spelled very similar to the word malach. And the word malach, often poorly translated as angel, the word malach actually means messenger, usually translated that way, also relatively poor translation, but better than angel. But an even better translation would be a malach is an extension of will. And you can think of that a little more carefully for a second. A malach is an extension of will. Well, let's think about what that would look like. Let's say I, I need, um, let's say I'm a teacher in a school, so let's say I need uh, somebody to go make photocopies. I need photocopies of, of a piece of paper that I have, a hundred copies of it. And there's a photocopy machine downstairs in the main office in the school. And so that photocopy machine is allocated for teachers to use to make copies. So what do I do? I don't have time right now to go make those copies myself. So I appoint one of my students to be my messenger. And then he goes down to the office and takes the piece of paper and photocopies it a hundred times. Now let's say somebody says to him, hey, uh, whatever, uh, Akiva, what are you doing? You're, 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 not, you're not a teacher here. You're not allowed to use the photocopy machine. So the, the student will say, well, I am a messenger of Zev Bannett. And Zev Bannett sent me here to actually make these copies. And so I'm currently operating as an extension of the will of Zev Bannett. And therefore, since Zev Bannett's will is allowed to be manifest inside of this office in order to actually use the copy machine, and I am an extension of that will, I therefore am allowed to use the copy machine now as if I myself am Zev Bannett. You could say, you can call that a messenger if you want, but all a messenger truly is is a manifestation of the will of the sender. And you view the messenger as an extension of that of the will of the sender, and that actually has certain powers that come with it. Whatever the powers of the sender were and, the, and that were allocated to this messenger, so now that messenger essentially embodies the will and the powers of the, of the sender insofar as it was given to him within this context. And so what that means is that the word malach, yeah, you could call it a messenger, you could even call it an angel if you want, but the word malach actually means extension, uh, uh, an extension of the will of the sender. Now, the reason why we, ha we have this concept of malach as these things called angels is because there's a whole system of how Hashem actually manifests himself through the layers of existence and essentially leads to the, to the, to the existence of things. So when Hashem actually creates something, we, we talk about Hashem manifesting something in the physical universe, there's a series of stages that Hashem sort of puts himself through to translate himself into an ever smaller fragment of himself until eventually it is manifest ultimately in the final product as the thing that Hashem is trying to actually manifest into the world. So if Hashem wants to manifest a tree, you could think of Hashem having to sort of put himself through a series of, of stages and translations and prisms and reflections that translates Hashem down, 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 down from an endless consciousness that we call the Ein Sof into this thing that we call a tree. And so there's a whole uh, science to that, what exactly that is and how that system works. But the point is that like that's that's why you'll have along those stages, those are, those are literally fragments of Hashem's will in ever more uh, constricted and smaller formats. And so you can think of that each of those layers is called a malach because a malach there means like it's, it's like it's like Hashem's self, but it's not really Hashem's self. It's almost like an extension of Hashem's self or like a fragment of Hashem's will. That's what a malach is, literally a fragment of your will in some kind of uh, limited form. So 
there's a lot more to unpack with that, just in, just in terms of why that, why the, the concept of wings and why Sefer Yechezkel talks about how you have these creatures that are flying around, Ofanim and Chayot, and those are very real things, and they need to be understood themselves, but that's not for now either. But the point is that that's what the word Malach means. Now, if that's what Malach means, what exactly is Malacha? And even a little deeper, on Shabbat, you're not allowed to do something called Malechet Machshevet. So what is Malechet Machshevet exactly? So I want to just give you a clear definition of what Malechet Machshevet is and to show you how that actually is part of the meaning of the word Malach. And then we'll talk about what the problem is with doing that on Shabbat. So Malechet Machshevet literally could be translated as you expressing your conscious will into the world from the inside to the outside in such a way that it transforms the outside world, changes it in some way that is permanent or significant. And we could say it's permanent in the sense that it's a permanent change or significant in the sense that it leads to a greater organization in the world. So again, say, let's say that again. Malachat Machshavit sort of seems to mean using your willpower, your conscious will, to, ex to, to express yourself, to express your conscious will into the world in such a way that it actually transforms the world around you on the outside in a permanent way or one that tends to bring the world to a state of greater order. That's what Malachat Machshavit seems to be. So you have to, it has to be intentional. You're intentionally expressing your will to change the world so that it actually, so either in a way that is permanent, so you're making real change happen as a result of your intentional consciousness, or, uh, and or, it has to be something which is bringing the world to a higher state of order. So let's think about that carefully also. So when we talk about melacha, and Hashem, Hashem does melacha, you'll notice, if you look in the, in the, in the first story, in the Torah, in the story of Bereshit, where Hashem manifests all of reality. So it's called Melacha, what Hashem is doing. And you think about why that is. Well, Melacha, again, means Hashem's consciousness, or well, to use the, the, that word, Hashem's self is essentially flowing into this setup of tools and manifesting as the entire universe. And that's, that's literally a, a process of permanent change and order being brought to this chaos of tohu vavohu, and Hashem's self is essentially organizing and manifesting this according to all the rules that he essentially sets up and, and, in, and inserts and installs into the setting. And so what Hashem does is essentially he takes, he, you think of, it, of Hashem as almost like, again, this is an analogy, so this is not literal, but think of it as Hashem is like this ocean of, of self, an ocean of endless consciousness. And then that, that self sort of like, again, the same metaphor as the, as the pipes of the mitzvot, there's all these different tools that Hashem uses to sort of translate himself into every, each and every element and atom and, and, and rule and force and law of nature. And, and then those things conglomerate into higher and higher and higher states of order following those rules until they reach the complexity that we see around us. And so Hashem is sort of bringing all of that into being through this process of melacha. So that's, and these are expressions of Hashem's will into existence. So similarly to that, we also have this process where we ourselves are able to also do something called melacha. And you'll notice that the melachot that we that the Torah says you're not supposed to do, so there's 39 different ones. And those 39 different ones, if you go through each one of them, so they fundamentally are all about change in the physical world that is permanent or significant or that leads to higher states of organizational order in the world. And so that's what melacha is. Now, I'll just mention the reason why it has to be organizational order. Let's just pick one melacha to sort of illustrate that. Let's pick, let's pick two melachos. One melacha that's classically mentioned is um, the melacha of cooking food. So cooking food takes food, let's say you're taking meat, and meat is essentially not really edible when it's raw. And what you do is essentially you cook it, 
And that process of, of adding heat to food, so we call that bishul. That's one of the 39 melachot that you're not supposed to do on Shabbat. And so when you do that, you're, tr you're converting this piece of meat from being inedible to now being qualitatively edible. So that's a permanent change, which actually has significance in the world of, of our lives. And therefore, when you do that, so that's called a melacha. Now, let's look at a different one in contrast. There's another melacha called hotza'a. So hotza'a is essentially when you take an object of significance to yourself and you move it from one location, let's say your own private space, to another location that is in a different space, let's say a public space or, or through a public space to another person's private space. Moving an object of significance from one space to another space that is different than the first space is also called a malacha. Now that's funny because the object itself does not change at all, but the location of the object does change. And so there are commentaries that talk about how the malacha of Hotza'a is, is a, what's called a malacha grua. It's kind of like this, not really as, as real or as full of malacha as the, as the regular ones like cooking, but it's still, a, it's still very much a malacha. And the reason is because even though there's no intrinsic change in the object itself, Simply moving an object from uh, object of significance from one place to another, so its utility changes based on where it is. That's what organization is all about. When you organize things, when you move things around, what you're trying to do is you're trying to upgrade the utility of the object in their placement to make them more effective where they are. And that could be manifest in a lot of different ways. But the point is that like moving something from place to place, something of significance in a way that is significant. So that's called a malacha because you are making a change that is applying consciousness to bring greater order into existence. And so every one of the malacha essentially functions that way. It's essentially bringing order, bringing permanent change through intentional conscious application of willpower. And so that's what malachas machsheves means. And so that we have all of these 39 different ways to do that, that the Torah describes. And then we also have lots of other examples, things that, that the Chachamim of the Gemara later on and, and later writers, later sages, all brought a, a whole system of other things that were added as they saw fit, because there are many things that you do where you are applying intentional conscious will in order to make a change in the outside world, but it's not exactly a malacha. And so those things are things that they kind of are in a gray area where they look similar to a malacha or they, they don't even look like one, but, they, but they're experienced by you as if they are one. And so those things are all included in this space of malachot. So that's essentially what, what, what it is that Hashem was doing, what we do on a regular basis. We constantly make change and Hashem stopped doing malacha on the, during the seventh phase. And now we are also stopping from doing malacha. So that brings us to our last question here. Why are we stopping from doing malacha one of, on the seventh day of this seven day cycle of, of our, our week that we have? We have this seven day cycle week that we go through, which is it's a little bit of a discussion on its own, what exactly that seven day cycle is. But why do we stop one of, from doing malacha on the seventh day of this cycle? What's the purpose of doing that? So I wanna just, I wanna say two things. First of all, um, all of the mitzvot are all brought into context in the, in, the, in the context of the story of the Garden of Eden. That story essentially is what led to the requirement of us having all of these mitzvot. So we, you could think of it as like, well, we used to naturally understand how to bridge ourselves with the physical world and how to connect ourselves with everything around us in a clear way. And then the story of the Garden of Eden happened and this 
this tree that we ate the fruit and that caused this massive set of distortions to enter into our minds and into our bodies in such a way that now we have a very hard time seeing clearly which methods and which paths will actually lead to the highest amount of connection and utility using these tools. And so each one of the mitzvot is supposed to help us to do that better. So the question is, well, with, with, that, or with that context, understand that. So I want to sort of show you how that plays out in terms of melacha and why we need a mitzvah called Shabbat to help heal the damage of melacha. So when you engage in melacha, what, what you do is you are essentially, you are an endless self. And then, like we said, you have the, all these, the mitzvot are, all, are like these pipes. But let's also look at one particular pipe for a second, the pipe of creating type of creativity. What does it mean to be creative? Well, creativity essentially is where you take yourself and using your active intentional willpower, you are trying to transform the world outside of you in a way that is either permanent or significant in terms of its order. That's essentially what creativity is. And so if you're just doing maintenance, where you're just sort of keeping things maintained the way that they are, you're not being creative, you're simply just being. But if you want to actually be, if you want to be creative, you have to actually take your conscious will and manifest it into the world from the inside out using your, using first your conscious will, then your body, your emotions, your thoughts, and your actual physical actions to make change happen in the outside world. So let's say you want to write a book. So that's one example of now you're basically, it takes, it takes tremendous effort to write a book. You have to have applied will and then thought and coherence and clarity. And then you have to actually plan out how you're going to do it, and which is the coherence factor. And then you have to actually sit down and do the actual writing. And you have to go through from beginning to end. And then when you're finally holding the book at the end, you're saying, look at this. This is, this is an expression of my own creativity from the inside all the way into the outside world. Here is a book with all these letters and shapes that are now organizing all my thoughts in a linear, coherent fashion that is accumulative. That is what creativity actually is. So what you are doing is you are essentially narrowing. You're taking yourself. You are an endless self. And you are narrowing yourself into a particular project and trying to essentially dedicate yourself using your will, using your thoughts, using your emotions, using your body towards a particular goal that you're trying to now create change in the world outside of you from the inside. So that process, the issue with doing that is it's something which is, in, which is not only is it incredible, it's arguably one of the most fundamental purposes of our being here. So you could think of that as the revealing of the self. Um, of the inner self that is hidden into the outer world that is now becoming revealed. So it's revealing who you really are. So that is a huge part of what our purpose is of being in this context where Hashem sort of set up this place for consciousness to be hidden and to slowly flow out into being. But the issue with that is that as you do that, as you give yourself over to a creative process where you're essentially sharing yourself or, or, or narrowing yourself or investing yourself into this creative uh, endeavor, so what can happen is you can actually lose touch with your point of origin. Your point of origin is that's is the you that is just whole, that is beyond any form of expression, that is completely ineffable. It's like it's like if you just sort of meditate quietly by yourself, and it's like there's just me. There's no there, like there's no words, there's no thoughts, there's no body. I'm just the self that is using all those things. And right now, I want to pull in from all those things. So, but when you decide to be creative in an intense way, where you invest yourself, you and try to manifest yourself in a way that now is expressed into the outside world, it's something which leads to almost like a, like you, you almost like going into a tunnel towards that goal and that manifestation of you into the physical outside world. And in fact, when you do manifest, when you have that book at the end or whatever it is that you're trying to create, you'll feel so fulfilled. You'll be like, wow, look, I managed to exist. I'm real. I revealed my inner self into the outside world and I matter. Because look, I made this thing which exists now and shows I was here. So that's something which is very, very powerful. But the tricky part about that is that because we have this 
distorted perspective from the tree of, of the Garden of Eden. So now you actually have the capacity to get so attached to that experience that now the experience of being creative and getting yourself out into the world in a real way can pull you away from the inner self that you are, which usually you're in touch with, but now that you've gotten so invested into your project, so it distorts away from the real you, from the, from the whole you, from the rest of you, and pulls you into what it is that you're doing such that now it can distort your life and disconnect you from yourself and from other things that yourself needs to be connecting to. So if you have many, many different areas in your life that you need to sort of be channeling yourself into, and so you pick this one, your, create, your creativity is now being channeled into one very intensive project in, into, into a malacha type of thing. So that malacha, so that's something which then pulls you and it can pull you away from other things that you need to also invest in because you're hyper in, uh, invested and hyper fixated on this one thing because it's so real. And so when you do that, that can lead to a degradation and decline in other aspects of your being. And so you could think of it like this. Malacha, and there's a lot of different kinds of malacha, so you have to sort of be aware of the different ones. And we're not, and, and there's, no, there's no clear line. It's not just like, oh, well, if you're doing a lot, a lot of malacha, so then that, that's, that, that's when it's a problem. But just a little malacha is okay. Like malacha in general is, doing malacha, like every malacha involves your conscious thought. So you might not be so aware of it because maybe it's very intuitive for you to organize things at this point without even thinking about it. But all malacha requires your conscious investment. And so again, so what we're trying to do with all this, what we're trying to say is that in order to have a healthy relationship with malacha where you don't get pulled into it in a way that can lead to distortions, is that you have to make sure to allocate one day out of the seven and it's specifically the day that the same, the, that seventh phase is a reason why it's the seventh phase. But one day out of the seven is allocated for you to pull back from all malacha that you're doing and reconnect to your inner self and reconnect to the source of your inner self, which is actually Hashem, the larger consciousness that you are an aspect of, and try to then take a look at the totality of all the different pipes and gateways in your life and say, okay, am I too overemphasizing in a particular one? Am I out of balance? Am I no longer aware of what the picture is of what it is that I'm doing? I need to make sure I'm constantly giving to all the different aspects of my life and I need to be giving to myself and connected to Hashem from the inside out. And so that is what we do one day out of seven, every single cycle of seven. And so that's exactly the same thing that you could think about it as very parallel to what Hashem does. And so just to sort of to, to sort of illustrate that, it's kind of like, well, Hashem stopped and Hashem, and when Hashem stopped, it shows, it shows the way, one of the things we say on Shabbat, on Friday night, we say, Sof that the ultimate act, the final action revealed the original purpose. In other words, when you are able to, when Hashem is able to stop in that final action, that reveals that His whole purpose was not just to keep making stuff and making stuff and making stuff. It reveals that the point of this context, when Hashem created it, was to make room, a stable context where there's now going to be room for other people to do things. That's why it says at the end of that text, that Hashem made things in order to be done. He made He made a whole system where there's all these rules, and then now within that system, you are supposed to take the raw material and make things with your own creativity and sort of finish that, but you can only do that because Hashem actually stopped and allowed there to be room for you to now have a stable context with those rules that you could act in. So that's essentially what Hashem stopped for, to show that it's really for you. And when you stop, so it's to show that you don't get so involved in your creativity that you forget why you're doing it. So that leads us to one final question. Why exactly are we being creative at all? What's the point of this, that Hashem made this context for us to be creative into the world? And so why are we doing that? Well, it goes back to what I mentioned a little, a little earlier about the one of the big aspects of the purpose of our being here. Well, the whole point of this context is for us to increasingly reveal the intangible, endless self that you actually are into the physical finite world that you are manifest within. 
And so it's like there's the hidden, and we're trying to constantly reveal the hidden into the revealed space. And so that's what melacha and creativity is all about. That's what you're trying to do. You're trying to essentially translate the you into the outside space. But the tricky part is that as you do that, sometimes you can forget that, and you can get very obsessed with that process and forget why you're even doing that. Ultimately, that's about Hashem. In other words, the whole context that we live in is in order to reveal this incredible symphony of Hashem's self manifest through all these different beings. And so just like I'm an aspect of Hashem, you're an aspect of Hashem. We're all aspects of Hashem trying to manifest and express Hashem's being into existence and to sort of watch as they all harmonize with each other and reveal that everything is from Hashem. So that's what we're all doing here. So the tricky part is that when you get involved in your own creativity in a way that is distorted, then you can start becoming isolating and make it like as if it's about you in, uh, in exclusion of everybody else. And it starts to block off other parts of your relationship and existence with everything around you. And you forget that it's really about you as an aspect of Hashem. And instead, you make it about you as your own separate being that has no connection to Hashem. And that's a very hazardous thing to do. That's what we call chait. So the tricky part here is to always try to use Shabbat as a way to sort of balance that out, to make it that you actually have this awareness of, well, I'm here to translate myself into the outside world, make change, transform, bring organization, bring conscious uh, growth into the world, but then also always remember who I am and where I'm from and who I'm connected to. And that is what the mitzvah of Shabbat actually does. The stopping enables you to do that and makes you sort of part of this process in a way that is whole instead of fragmented and distorted. Okay, a lot of other things to figure out there. Obviously, there's plenty of open questions that this leads to, but in terms of an overview and a big picture crash course perspective of what Shabbat is, I think that, that answers a lot of those questions and or answers just a lot of questions in general. And feel free to respond with comments and questions in the comment section below. And looking forward to seeing you in the next video.